I want to begin a three-part series today that uh, I'm going to call, What Kind of Church Do We Want to Be? And that's what it focuses on. What kind of church do we want to be going forward? When you lose a pastor, especially a good pastor, and one that's been there a long time, one of the caliber of Fred Stone, I know uh, we'd be just lying to ourselves to tell ourselves he doesn't make us real nervous, right? We get an anxious feeling because what's the next guy coming in going to be like? And where is he going to take us? And how is the church going to change? And what's it going to look like? And all those kind of things. And a lot of times we worry about, well, who's going to take care of this or who's going to take care of that and how things are going to fall in place in the absence of a pastor. Because you realize I'm pretty much just a preacher. Right? I live over in Greer, and I'm here one day a week. And Brian and the other staff members, Jeff and others, are carrying the load for the pastoral ministry. But one of the things that happens when uh, pastors leave, it's a good thing. It causes those who are in secondary roles to pick up their game. I mean, it means that deacons have got to pick up their game. It means the Sunday school teachers have got to pick up their game because a lot of times uh, when a guy's been there a long time, we just kind of get used to that guy kind of carrying the ball and doing everything, right? And so one of the things that happens is it makes people step up. And I hope you're doing that today, that uh, you're not just leaving to the Sunday school teachers, to the deacons, to the staff, that you're saying, boy, what can I do to advance the cause of the kingdom of Christ here at First Baptist Church of Pickens? There's another thing, too, though, that happens. Churches begin to wonder, well, where are we going from here? And what kind of church do we want to be? And I want to tell you, whether you've lost a pastor or you have a pastor, that's always a good question from time to time to ask yourself, what do we want to be as a church? So I've taken it upon myself. I didn't consult with the deacons, the personnel committee, or even the staff. I've taken it upon myself. I've invited in two experts to give us some advice about where do we go from here? And I know some of you are thinking, Boy, that guy has overshot the runway now. I mean, how did he go spend money? And not, not, it's not going to cost you a thing. So don't get all anxious, you know, and all worried and fretful. The two I'm inviting in are the Apostle Paul, who would know more how to start a church and what a church ought to look like than the Apostle Paul. And the other is James, the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So we're going to see what these two guys have got to say over the next three weeks about what kind of church should we be? This is not an all-inclusive message. It's not everything. This whole series won't be all-inclusive about here's everything you need to be as a church. But I'm going to mention just three things that I think are right toward the top of what we ought to be as a church. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And let me just set up this passage for you so you'll understand what we're about to read. Paul is on his second missionary journey, okay? He's taking his second missionary journey. He's going to the city of Philippi. You know, the book of Philippians was written to that church in Philippi. You read about it in the book of Acts. When he gets to Philippi, a lot of people come on board and they trust Christ as Savior. But it's not without great suffering on Paul's part. He's beaten, put in jail. Even there, he wins a Philippian jailer and his family to Christ. But ultimately... He has to flee because of persecution. When he leaves there, he goes to another neighboring town by the name of Thessalonica. And there in Thessalonica on the Sabbath, the Bible says he goes and he preaches. And he does that three consecutive Sabbaths, three consecutive Saturdays. He's there in the Sabbath 
Well, he's there in the synagogue, and he's preaching the Word of God. He's giving them the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And many people hear that, and they believe and become Christians. He develops in a short period of time a real strong relationship with these people. Only there three weeks. They come to him after the third week, and they say, Paul, for your safety, you got to get out of Dodge. And so he takes the next flight out, and he's on his way to another place, right? At their insistence, he leaves. He gets to the next spot, though, and he still has these Thessalonians on his mind. And he's wondering, what's become of these young believers who had come into the church? They don't have a pastor. What are they going to do? How are they going to make it? How are they going to survive? And so he's wondering about their spiritual future. And so he wants to go back, and he even tries to go back, but the words he uses in 1 Thessalonians are these, Satan hinders him in going. He tries numerous times, but every time Satan blocked his ability to go back. So I want you to read in chapter 3 and verse 1 with me what he now does. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. Now you understand, persecution is always not far away from the door of Paul. That's what he means when he says, I thought even though it was dangerous, it'd be better to be left alone. And he sends Timothy back to get a report on what's happening with these people in Thessalonica. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Now, what's he got in mind? What's he fearful of? Why is he so anxious? You would readily understand, without me even telling you, why he would be anxious in the circumstance I've outlined. These are young believers. He's done everything he can in the three weeks to disciple them and give them the information that they need, but they were like us. Do you always get things right the first time? Do you ever have to be reminded of anything? And so Paul has said to them some things, even about the second coming of Jesus, that they kind of get mixed up about. We're going to see that at a later time. But they were confused about some things. And so he worries that in the absence of somebody to preach the Scripture to them and to preach the truth to them, they're going to just fall apart. That's a natural concern, right? So what does he do? He sends Timothy back to check on them. Look, if you will, at chapter 3 and verse 6. And we read the report of Timothy from 6 through 10. Now, Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. So look up for a minute. Not bad news. Timothy gets back and says, Paul, relax. It's good. I mean, they're growing in love. They're growing in faith. It's good. And that you always have good memories of us wanting to see us as also we want to see you. They miss you as bad as you miss them. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience because of you before our God? As we pray earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Boy, I cannot wait to get back with you and all the things that you need bolstering up in. I'm going to do that. I can't wait for that day. I'm praying for that day. I anticipate that day. And then he gives them this prayer. And let me just tell you before we read it, 
This is going to be our focus for the next three sermons, just these three verses, okay? We'll bring in some other verses, but these are the primary verses we're going to look at. And it's a prayer. And because we're reading it this morning, guess what? It's a written prayer. It's one he prayed, no doubt, verbally, but it's a written prayer. Now, I just want to help you where you're thinking about that for a minute. When I was a kid coming along, I'm 69 years old. When I was a kid, and I don't think this mentality prevails today, but when I was a kid, if you grew up in a conservative church, the conservative church had a kind of way of looking down at prayers that were read. And you all remember that? I can remember here, hearing people say, well, you know, they just read that prayer. They didn't mean it. It wasn't from the heart. They, they read that. How many of you ever wrote a love letter? Anybody in here? None of you are romantic at all? <laughs> you all have written love letters, right? You started about third grade, right? Sent that little note, do you love me? If yes, check the box, you know? <laughs> did you mean what you wrote? Of course you did, right? So that's just foggy thinking to think because I write something and I don't mean it, you know? That's a foolish notion. In fact, what it reflects to me is this. You've had a chance to think about it. And I don't know about you, when I start writing things, Sometimes I'll write it and I think, yeah, that's not it. And I'll scratch it out or I'll tear it up and I'll start over, right? We hit the delete key and we do it again. And so Paul has the opportunity to think, what am I going to say to these Thessalonians? What is the prayer I really want to pray for these Thessalonians? This is a written prayer. And so i got to tell you, to me, it must be really important. It's what he thought about and concluded. It's what I want to say. So look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Let me come to you as I've said I want to and as you want me to. Verse 12, and here's the heart of it. And may the Lord cause you to increase. What does it mean to increase? Get more, right? And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow. You know what it is to overflow? You start pouring something into a container. And you get to the top, and he just spills over. There's more than even you can anticipate. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love one for another. Now, why are you saying, well, preacher, that's us here at First Pickens. We got it down, right? We are having a love fest. We just love each other. Boy, we love one another. We love everybody whose name is on our roll, right? We just love, 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 love each other. We're good to go. Well, wait a second. That's not where he ends. He says, and for everyone, just as we also do for you. Hmm. Okay, we'll do that. That would mean we would love the First Presbyterian Church, right? We're okay with that. Presbyterians are good people. We're okay the Love the Methodist people behind us here, right? We'll love them too. We'll love the Pentecostals and the Church of God. Okay, we're good. We'll love the Mormons. We'll love Jehovah's Witness. We'll love the Charismatics. We'll love the Catholics. We'll even love the Jews. We'll love the Muslims. We'll love the Mormons. We'll love the Jehovah's Witnesses. We'll love the folks who frequent the bars and never come to church. We'll love those who stand in the streets and say, I'm an atheist and I hate your God and don't even believe he exists. You see, everybody's everybody. 
That includes people from Pickens, right? I don't know what you call people from Pickens. I said in the first, church, in the first service, Pickenites, and then Tim came and said, well, actually, they're Pickenese. Right? <laughs> it means you love all the people from Pickens who grew up in Pickens. They're, they're born and bred here. It also means you love those from out of town. You love them from Greenville, from Greer, and from Travers Rest, and from Anderson, and from North Carolina, and from Virginia, and yes, Yankees. You love even Yankees. And that's what he's praying, right? He says, I pray you will love everyone in the church and everyone else. Everyone outside the church as well. And notice what he says, verse 13. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Now there are three things he prays for. He prays for them to begin to love in an increasing fashion and for that love to overflow and to love everybody, including those in and out of the church, for them to be blameless in holiness before our God. That's what we'll look at next week. And to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look at that two weeks from today. Now here's the big question. He's had a chance to think about this and to know what it is he wants to say in this prayer, what he's asking God to do in their lives and what he's wanting them to be. And it becomes apparent, the first order of business is, that they love one another and love everyone else. And you have to ask, why do you think that was the top priority in his prayer for this church at Thessalonica? I want to share with you three reasons real quickly. And then I want to share with you some ways in which we do what it is he's asking us to do. I believe he prays what he prays because Jesus said so clearly that love is the mark the badge of someone who is a disciple. Right before his death in John 13, 34 and 35, you know what Jesus said? He looked at his disciples and this is what he said. I give you a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. He tells them how to love. As I have loved you, I want you to love others. And then he says this, this is how they will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. So what you can quickly see is this, love is the badge of discipleship. It's the telltale indicator. It's the sign of somebody who's a believer. Now let me ask you, how do you know somebody's a believer? Some folks think the way you let them know you're a believer is you get a tattoo on your arm, it's got John 3.16. And I want to tell you something. If you got a tattoo of John 3.16 or anything else, that don't bother me in the least. Because some folks will use that as an opportunity to be a witness for the Lord. But understand this. Having the tattoo doesn't make you a believer. Do you understand that? It's not a real sign that you're a believer. It's okay to have a tattoo. If you want a tattoo, put whatever what you want on your arm. But understand this. It doesn't translate into you being automatically a Christian any more than having a bumper sticker that says, honk if you love Jesus, right? You can get that on a bumper sticker. I don't make you a believer. You could have bought the car from somebody who had put the bumper sticker on the car, right? And so, none of those things. 
Some of you, I'm sure, today are wearing gold earrings or a necklace that has a cross around it or a cross on it. And there's nothing wrong with that because it says to people, man, I believe in the cross. The cross is important. It's the centerpiece of my life. But don't taste them. Having the necklace, having the earrings, doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus says the way you'll know somebody's a Christian is because they have love one for another. It's by how you love. Now, I want to ask you something. Have you ever been in a department store in a neighborhood? You're walking, you meet somebody, and you spend four, five, six minutes with them in conversation, maybe not even that long, and you walk away. You didn't talk about anything, any, anything theological, but you walk away from them, and you say to yourself this, I just bet you they were a Christian. You ever had that happen? We all have, right? Again, that's yes and no. And y'all going to get that down before I leave here. You know that? <laughs> So, we've all had that experience. What was it about them that made you reach that conclusion? Did you say, I saw the tattoo. I saw the bumper sticker on his car. I saw the the necklace around their neck. No, it was always this. It was something about their attitude, something about how they treated you, something about how they responded. They were so helpful. They were so kind. They were so patient. They were so loving. You just thought to yourself, that guy, that guy has got... And it was because of their love, the very thing that Jesus said. He said, you'll know that they're believers because of how they love one another. There's a second reason. From Paul's experience, he knew this. A church that doesn't love the way Jesus loved, it's all for naught. Now, like I said in the first service, I'll say it again now. I know I'm going to offend somebody. And this is a bigger crowd, so I know I'm going to offend somebody here. I don't intend to do that. I'm just trying to be honest with you, okay? Why would anybody ever name a church Corinth? I know in this many people in the room, somebody here has belonged to a Corinth at some point in time. I have preached in several Corinths. Corinth number one, Corinth number two in another place. You just wonder, is there a Corinth number three and four because they couldn't get along with each other either? But why would you name a church Corinth? It's like, did you not have a copy of the Bible? I mean, this is a hot mess of a church. I mean, they're just... They're just a mess. And Paul writes to him and says, man, I can't believe what I'm hearing about you and I believe it's true. You're divided and you're fighting among yourselves and there's dissension in the church and there's a guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. Are you crazy? What's going on? there? And you're suing one another, taking each other to court and you get upset over the Lord's Supper and there's all kinds of problems about the Spirit of God and how He works in your life. So much so that between chapter 12, which is about the gifts of the Spirit, and chapter 14, which is about tongues, he sandwiches in chapter 13 that says you can have all the gifts in the world, but if you don't have love, it's useless, right? You're just like a loud set of symbols or a gong. It means absolutely nothing unless you have love. Now, I want to tell you something. I've seen churches that tried to build ministries around somebody who's a great, great, great preacher or musicians who are great, great, great musicians. But I want to tell you something. Antagonism and division and dissension and lack of love always trumps all that. You can have every bit of that, but unless you have love in a church, unless people know that first church of Pickens, boy, I'll tell you this about them. Their preacher may not be much, that guy they got for the interim. Their music's okay, but I'm going to tell you something, friend. They do love people. If you will be known as a church that loves, 
I mean, really loves, well, people will be the path to your door. So I think that's one of the reasons Paul said what he did. There's a third reason, and it's the most obvious of all probably. How can we represent Jesus and not epitomize love? Because he did. John said this of God. He said, God is love. I've been here now about 15 or 16 weeks. I'm not sure. But about 13 of those weeks, the first 13 of those weeks, you know if you were here, I preached just about every message around the narrative of Jesus. And I did that with purpose because I wanted you to see, boy, Jesus is a loving Savior. He loves harlots. He loves the lowly. He loves the down and outers. He loves the publicans. He loves every manner of sinner. He's helpful. He's compassionate. He's healing. He's raising the dead. He's doing all these miracles. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus is the epitome of love. How crazy is it for us to think that we can go into the world and declare to the world, there's this God who you've never seen, who is invisible, who exists, who sent His Son who you've never seen, and He came and He lived and He died on the cross and He rose from the dead and He gives you eternal life and He loves you. And then be angry with the world. Have you ever seen churches that you get the feeling when you listen to what they say and what they do and how they flesh out their ministry, boy, they are angry with the world. You know more for what they're against than what they're for? Have you ever seen that? And Jesus says, I want to tell you something. Or Paul says, if you want to be the church that God would have you to be, then by all means, you've got to be a church that increases in love. And overflows with love. Now let me ask you, is that who First Pickens is? Well, I hope it is. I really hope it is because that's the first step in becoming a great church. You are increasing in love and you absolutely exude love and overflow in love. Now some of you say, well, we're working on it, but how do we do that? You got a sheet of paper and a pencil. I'm going to give you five quick ideas and I'm done. You ready? Here's five things you need to do if you want to be a church that overflows in love and is increasing in love. And the first thing you may not like, you ready? you got to get over yourself. you just got to get over yourself. You say, preacher, what in the world you mean? Look with me to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4. Turn there real quickly. Philippians, just a few pages to your left. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Paul is telling us, how Jesus lived, and this is what he says. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now I want to tell you something. That's the way kingdom people live, but I want to warn you about something. That's the opposite of how people of this world live. People of this world, the biggest difference between you and them outwardly as we look at your life should be this. We should recognize quickly, that guy's a kingdom person, and so he's thinking of others before he thinks of himself. And I'll tell you something, that's sacrificial. That requires real humility, not fake humility, to put others ahead of yourself. But the way the world looks at situations is this, it's me first. I take care of me first. I may take care of others later, but I got to take care of me. In fact, I see commercials. I tell my wife yesterday, we were watching television. I saw a commercial where they actually justified that kind of mentality. It's me first. 
I need to take care of me. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You see the difference in those two ideas? It's not thinking less of myself that I think, poor me, how bad I am. It's just not thinking about me. It's just not being really concerned so much about me. Now, I'm going to tip you off on something if you hadn't already noticed it. We're pretty self-centered creatures, you know that, by nature. I mean, we all have this tendency to focus more on our problems than we do other people's problems. I'm pastoring at Brushy Creek years ago. There's a man in our church in his early 70s. He develops what they fearful, fearful are is cancer. He has to go in for an operation. I'm sitting there with his wife in the waiting room. They do the procedure. They come out. Wasn't going long. Just struck a note of fear in me because he wasn't in there very long at all. The surgeon comes out and he says, I've got to tell you some bad news. He kneels down there in front of the guy's wife. And he says, your husband has a cancer that's just inoperable. We got in there and it spread, it's metastasized. And he's not going to live long. I'm real, real, real sorry. He pats her on the knee, asks her anything he can do. She looks just dumbfounded and he walks out. As soon as he gets out, she turns to me and she says to me, these are almost her exact words, what am I going to do when he's gone? How am I going to make it? Who's going to take care of me? What's my life going to be like when he's gone? And you know what I couldn't help but think? Uh, he's the guy with cancer. You're going to be the one living. Your life's going on. He's getting ready from the earthly perspective, getting ready to end. Have you ever noticed how when tragedies occur so oftentimes, we don't even realize we do it. We make it about us. We become the center of the universe and they become almost secondary. How does this impact my life? Not how does it impact his life. You might think if she really loved him, she'd be thinking, and I know she did. She's just self-absorbed. But she might be thinking, how am I going to help him through this difficult time? Well, he's facing some dark days ahead. He's facing a real message here when he wakes up that no one wants to get, that you're dying. But instead... Right now in the moment, she's consumed in herself. Can I ask you something? Is that kind of indicative of your life? Your problems matter so much that other people's just don't matter as much. So first thing you need to do is get over yourself. Second thing you need to do is empathize. Begin seeing others and their hurts and needs before you do your own. Now turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And verse 26. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You know what he's saying? He's saying when you're in the body of Christ and you feel for others the way you should and you're not putting yourself first, it's always about you. You've gotten over yourself. And you learn how to empathize with others. When they rejoice, guess what? You get happy with them. And when they're sad and they're broken and their heart aches, man, your heart aches right along with them because you, you put yourself in their shoes. That's what it means to empathize. I take myself out of my life and I insert myself into somebody else's life. I'm going to tell you, when you begin to do that, 
where you'll begin to feel for people and love people in a way you never had before. Here's the tragedy. Most time we see people with needs who are hurting and we just go, ooh, that's bad. That's bad. Boy, I wish I could do something about that. And then we just walk right on. I'm pastor of Western Avenue Baptist Church. When this happened, I'm about 34 years of age. There was a lady in our church who was chronically going in and out of the hospital all the time. And uh, she wasn't sick a whole lot of time. She just loved doctors and hospitals. And so she's about 45 miles away, and i got to go see her. And it's been one of the most horrendous weeks in my life to that point in time as a pastor. So I'm just war slap out. I've slept very little this week. And I'm in my car, and I'm driving to Winston-Salem. And I can remember the conversation. It's been many, many years ago, about half a lifetime ago. And, yeah, I remember it very distinctly. I'm having a pity party. Have any of y'all ever done that? I'm the only invited guest, and I'm just wallowing in it. I'm just thinking, poor me. I'm so tired. I'm hungry. I haven't slept. They're just running me ragged. I'm going over to see somebody who I need the bed worse than they need it. And I'm riding over there. And I pull up into the parking lot and I have to park two floors up and that's an aggravation. I get out and I'm walking a long way to the hospital, big, huge hospital in Winston-Salem. And I get to the back door of the hospital and it's got these electric doors, you know. And I'm in a hurry because I just want to get in there and see her and get out of there. Bless the Lord Jesus. And I'm just, I'm just getting in and getting out and just doing my job, right? And just as I start in that door and the electric door opens, there's a lady with a kid in a wheelchair, and she's pushing him out, and I just nearly run right over the top of him. And so I did like any of you, I stop, apologize, and I back up, and I just get out of their way and wait. And she pushes this little boy out. She's about my wife's age, and the little boy's about the age of my little boy. About seven years of age, and he's sitting in this wheelchair, and he's got hospital gown on, but a baseball cap, one of these plastic baseball caps. And you can't help but notice all of his hair is gone. And he's got those marks that indicate he's a radiation treatment patient. And so I just stand back. And she pushes him out. And they go out here to that divider. And there's a little wall. And she sits on the wall. And he's there in the sunshine. And they're just out soaking up sunshine. And I stand there for about 30 seconds and watch that lady. I remember just big tears just pouring down my face. And I thought, you big baby, you're complaining about this and about that and how hard you got it. You don't know what trouble is. That's trouble. Well, can you put yourself in that mama's shoes? She's sitting there saying nice things and smiling and trying to cheer up her boy. But on the inside, can you imagine the turmoil and the heartache and the hurt and the fear and the anxiety that's going on inside that lady. And that's what empathy looks like. It's when you don't just see it. When you stop long enough to just insert yourself in their place. And I'm going to tell you something. Every one of you got friends right now who've got cancer. they got a heart problem. They don't have money. A lot of us in this room, most of us in this room, you may have had this experience at some time where you didn't know where your next check was coming from, your next meal was coming from, how you're going to pay the rent at the end of the month. But most of us get through life without that. It may have happened once or twice, but most of us, we live free of that. But I'm going to tell you something. There's some folk out there. They live that way every day of their lives. 
There are folk out there who have prescriptions this morning that they need to have filled, but they can't get them filled because they don't have the money to do it. They're making choices about, do I do this or do I do that? And that's something a lot of us, we just know anything about that. And that's the beginning of love. If you want to have love that increases and overflows, you've got to get the place you can empathize with people. You see them and, and you live in their shoes for just a few minutes until you can get your head around, here's what I need to do. Here's the third thing I think you can do if you want to increase in love and overflow in love, and that's to pray for one another. James, remember I mentioned James? We're going to look at him more closely next week, but James in chapter 5 and verse 16 says, pray for one another. Do that continually. Now look up and listen. I don't want to beat up on anybody this morning, but you know so often what we take that to mean. Then in Sunday school we hear about somebody who's sick and we say, yeah, I'll pray for them. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I'll pray for them. And a lot of times we never give it another thought. We say sometimes when we say, I pray for you, it just means you crossed my mind. I thought about you. But I didn't really pray for you. And even how we pray, when James says that, he didn't mean just to let them pass through your mind to allow their name to fall off your lips. Okay, I mentioned them. I'm done with that. You know how I think he meant for us to pray? That we stop and put ourselves in the shoes. And right now, well, I got a lot of friends that have cancer. I'm getting older, and a lot of my friends are getting older, and they're getting sick. I mean, close friends to me. And I'm going to tell you, every night when I pray, and in the morning when I pray, I try to think what's it like to be, and I won't call their name, but this particular person. What's it like to be their wife? What's it like to have to go get chemotherapy and radiation? What's it like to be so sick? You think you're going to die and then you're fearful you might. What's it like to be like, what's it like to see your spouse slipping away from you? What's it like? And to pray from that perspective, God, give them peace. Let them think of something other than their cancer or their problem or their sickness or whatever it is that's wrong in their life. they got problems with their children or their marriage is falling apart. God, just, just let them get free of that for a few minutes. Would you do that? Would you intervene somehow and help them? I'm going to tell you, if you'll begin to do that, more folks will begin to notice First Baptist Pickens. Boy, those folks, they don't just say they pray for They really pray for you. They really love you. They're growing in their love and they're abounding in their love. Which leads me to the fourth thing, and this is something I really like. It's pretty simple. You ready? Do something. Do something. I want you to listen as I read 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. Listen to what John says. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but shuts off his compassion from him, how can God's love reside in him? Boy, I don't know how you'd make it any clearer than that. Bob Goff, remember that book I mentioned four, five, six weeks ago, Bob Goff? I'm telling you that again so you can write it down. Bob Goff, Love Does is the book he authored. I told you about that book several weeks ago. One gentleman in the crowd came and said to me the following Sunday, he said, I bought that book. I'm not a reader. I want to tell you something. I finished it in two days. 
He said, one of the greatest books I've ever read. If you haven't read it, you ought to get that book. I'm telling you, you'll laugh, you'll cry. It's a great, great, great read. Love does. And the whole basis of it is this. That love is not something you look at somebody and say with goo-goo eyes. When you love somebody, you act. Love is an action. It's not a thought. It's not a suggestion. It's not a word. It's not a proposal. It's an action. You love folk by doing. So do something. Go cut somebody's grass if you love them. Take them a meal this afternoon if you love them. Pay their light bill if you love them. Take care of that prescription for them if you love them. Keep their kids and give them a night on the town if you love them. You understand what I'm saying? That's what real love looks like. It acts. It does something. The church... Every day it exists has tons of opportunities to show the world, to demonstrate the world that we love them. But can I tell you something? We just seldom take those opportunities. We let them come and we let them go instead of seizing the moment. And I'm going to tell you something. Every time I see the church be the church, boy, my head swells with pride. And every time I see the church not be the church, as a pastor, it always broke my heart. I'm preaching revival about 23, 4 years ago, best I can remember, in a community a number of miles from Greer. The guy who calls me and asks me to preach, I've never met. Pretty unusual. I got a few invitations like that, but usually there were guys that I knew. Guys like Fred would say, would you come over and would you preach for me? This guy, though, I'd never met, didn't know his name, didn't know anything about it. He calls me out of the blue and he says, I've heard about you. Could you come and preach? I said, yeah. He gives me the dates. I'm going to be there Sunday night through a Wednesday. So I go and I preach. I preach Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday. And when Wednesday comes, I get there and he comes over to me and sits down. And he says, uh, tells me he's enjoyed it. And he says, could you go with me to supper tonight after this is over? I said, I'd be glad to. So when it was over, his wife couldn't be there that night. And he and I go to supper at this little fish camp. We're sitting there, we're ordering our meal, and we're just waiting on the waitress to bring our food. It's kind of awkward. It's just real unusually silent. And he says, has anybody told you about me, my situation? I said, no. I felt a little bit odd. I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, you don't know anything about my situation at all? No. He says, you're probably the only preacher in South Carolina who doesn't. I want to tell you something. I really didn't. I didn't know him from Adam other than I'd met him for those three days. He says, can I tell you my story? I'd be glad to, to listen. He tells me, short as I can make it, a few years back, a couple years back from when this happened years ago, he said, I got a 19-year-old daughter. She just got out of high school. She's dating our youth minister. And she suddenly begins to develop these health problems. My wife asks her what's going on. She just evades it, leads us down this rabbit trail. But she's not changing in size any that we can tell. She's camouflaging it with her clothes. And one Saturday night, she's so deathly ill, we think it must be a gallbladder appendicitis. So at 3 in the morning, when we can't manage it anymore, we rush her to the hospital, local hospital. 
We get there, and she's back there just a few minutes. And this doctor comes out, and he says, Pastor, can I talk with you? He says, yes, sir. And he sits down, and he says, I don't know how to tell you this. He said, but your daughter is about eight months pregnant. And she's in labor, and she's going to have this baby tonight. He said, me and my wife look at each other, and we cannot believe what we're hearing. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've sat across from a lot of people pretty good about telling me, telling when people are telling me the truth and when they're telling me a lie. I've done this so long. I can look in his face and just tell. I don't know, understand that, but he's telling me the absolute truth. He says, we're grief-stricken. He said, we're just in shock. The baby's born a few hours later. It's a Saturday night, so I haven't been to bed all night long. I've been up with my daughter. Now I have a baby about 8 in the morning. I show up at church in the clothes I wore to the hospital. The church service begins, but I tell the guy, I'm going to take charge, and I just got something I got to tell the congregation. He stands up, and he tells the congregation just what I've told you. And he says, I want to tell you, I didn't know about this. I'm embarrassed about this. But I understand if you want me to resign. He said, we haven't tried to hide anything from you, but I'm just, I'm finding this out for myself, and I'm tired, and I can't do this this morning. So there's not going to be any preaching. Brother so-and-so is going to come, and he's going to lead us in a song or two. You're going to pray, and then you're going home. But if you want me to resign, I'm not going to be here. You can talk openly about it among yourselves, and I'm going to leave and go back to the hospital, be my wife and daughter. He walks out the door. He goes to the hospital. He stays till about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon. He gets in his car, and he and his wife are going home. They're just dead tired. He says, when I get to the pastorum, I start turning in the driveway. And as I turn in the driveway, I look, and they're under our carport. It looks like the whole church has gone to Walmart, and they bought out everything Walmart had to sell on babies. He says, the carport is just packed from top to bottom with things that baby could use. He said, I can't tell you how I felt in my heart. I'm going to tell you, I sat there listening to that, and I just began to cry. I mean, I'm emotional, and I just began to cry. You know how I cried? Not for the hardship he endured. I cried because I thought to myself, what a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be. That's when the church acts like the church, Right? I've seen it so many times, be so judgmental. And we want to just preach to people and beat up on people and tell them how you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that. When many of us ourselves have found ourselves in sin's path, and boy, we need the mercy and the grace of God bestowed on us. And thank God He showed us mercy. But why is it we're so slow sometimes to show mercy and grace to other people? It's a beautiful thing when the church acts like the church. It's a sad thing when the church doesn't seize the opportunity it's been given to be the church. There's one last thing, and I close with this. If you want to love to increase in your life and in your church and to overflow, begin forgiving people who have hurt you. Now, Brian has not had a single conversation with me, and I had dinner with Fred Stone about 10 days ago or 9 days ago. Fred has not said a single word to me. I don't know of anybody in this church that's had a riff with anybody else. That's the honest truth before God. 
But I'll tell you something, in a church this size, it would seem almost impossible to me that you could be members here for a long, long, long time and somebody not get crosswise with somebody else. And I'm asking you, if you want love to abound, to forgive them. Right now, today, to make a choice that going forward, I'm forgiving them. I'm going to live as though that never happened. I'm going to put it out of my life. And some of you are thinking already, I know what you're thinking, because I've been where you are. You don't know what they did. You don't know how inexcusable their action against me was. And boy, I get that, because I'm going to tell you, I've had some folk do some pretty mean stuff to me through the years. Hard to get by, hard just to get past that. But I'm going to tell you something. They nailed Jesus to the cross. And as they're nailing him to the cross, the first words out of his mouth were these, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think that prayer included Pilate, who like a coward found him guilty when he should have found him innocent. I think it included the Jewish leaders of that mob who made false accusations knowing they weren't true. I think it applied to the Roman soldiers who brutally drove those spikes through his hands. And I think it included all those folk out there for whom he had done good who failed to stand in his behalf, even the disciples who betrayed him and who denied ever even knowing him. And I'm going to say to you, if Jesus can forgive us that, what's anybody ever done to you that you can't forgive? Remember Joseph in the Old Testament, chapter 45? His brothers, you know how bad his brothers disliked him? They wanted him dead. They threw him into a cistern. We're going to kill him. Later, to make a few bucks and to allow their conscience to be a little at ease, they sold him to slave traders. He ends up in prison because of a lie that Potiphar's wife told about him. All that because of what these brothers did, and yet when they come years later in need of help, you know what he does? Instead of turning them away or being angry with them, he literally, literally drives all the Egyptians out of the room and reaches out and embraces them and hugs them and even says this, don't blame yourself. You didn't put me here. God put me here. He did everything in his power to restore a broken relationship. And I'm going to tell you something. When your love grows and when you abound in love, that's exactly what every one of us need to do. We need to come to the place that we forgive others, even inexcusable hurts in our life. So let me ask you, have you ever done that? Can you think of somebody right now at First Baptist Pickens or somebody in your family or somebody at work and you say, you know, I have trouble loving them because they did this to me right here. Would you let it go today? Would you just let that go? You say, I can't. Yeah, you can you got a choice. I want to tell you something. They don't even hold the keys to that. You do. You're the only one who can forgive them. You're the only one who can let it go. So would you do that this morning? We're going to have a hymn of invitation. And Brian's going to sing it, lead us in it. But if the Lord's spoken to your heart and there's something you need to deal with God about, would you just get up out of your seat right now and just come and you can just stand here at the front or kneel or you can do it right there at your chair if you don't want to come forward. Just maybe be seated again. I'll understand. Just say, I got some business I got to take care of. God, I haven't been loving the way I need to love. Let's see this, Brian leads us.